there was a man who prided himself on being exceedingly punctual. Uh, he had a precise routine that he followed every single morning of his life during the work week. The alarm went off at 6.30. He was up, showered, brushed his teeth, uh, ate, brushed his teeth again, uh, grabbed his briefcase, ran out the door, got in his car, drove down to the ferry landing, the boat landing, where he parked his car, took his briefcase, went on to the ferry that took him over to the business district, got out of the car, walked to his building, into the elevator, up to the 17th floor, um, coat on the rack, briefcase on the desk, and sat in his chair at 8 o'clock sharp. Not 8.01, not 7.59, 8 o'clock sharp. Every morning, and the routine was perfect for eight years. One morning, his alarm went off 15 minutes late. When he woke up, he panicked. He rushed, had a quick bite to eat, quick shower, quick shave, ran to the car, quickly drove down to the dock, to the landing, got out of the car to see where the boat was, and he saw that the ferry was just a few yards, feet from the shore. And he quickly thought, I think I can do it. I think I can make it. And with full speed, he rushed, ran down toward the landing and jumped off, miraculously thudded onto the ferry. Picked himself up. The captain quickly ran down and said, wow, that was a great leap. But if you had waited just another minute, the boat would have been at the dock. <laughs> See, the boat wasn't leaving, it was still coming in. There was a man who was a creature of routine. We all live by them. We have our routines on Monday through Friday, our weekend routines, and it's good to have them because we live by them. It helps us manage the way we live. The early church also had four wonderful routines. They devoted themselves constantly to the apostles' doctrine the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Those were their four priorities, and we've done a series on the church. We've called it Upon This Rock. This is, I think, the tenth week in it. And we've spent the last four weeks on this singular verse. So by the end of today, you'll have this firmly memorized, no doubt, in your mind. On Thursday, my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., where we attended the National Prayer Breakfast. It's something that I've been to several times in the past. It's a wonderful event. Uh, it's the, the President of the United States is there, and, you know, members of both houses are there, and uh, people from all over the world are there. Uh, right across the table was Ken Starr this time, and um, uh, several senators that we had seen and, and seen on television. A couple of years ago, I sat next to Imelda Marcos, and uh, I, I confess I did look down to see what shoes she had on. It's just <laughs> habit, I guess. But at this particular prayer breakfast on Thursday, there were several speakers, one who read Psalm 91 about our Lord being a refuge. Uh, his name was Sergeant Douglas Norman. He was with the 3rd Infantry in Afghanistan, and his Humvee was blown up, and two of his buddies were killed. And uh, in his comments, he turned toward the President of the United States. He said, Mr. President, it gives us great confidence to know that you pray, and be assured we are praying for you. Sometime later, when the President stood up, he turned toward the sergeant and he said, Sergeant Norman, I want you to know your prayers work. 
And then he said something to us all. He said, I hope America is never too proud to pray. He quoted several other presidents in the past, like Washington, Lincoln, etc. And how what we must be devoted, not just on that day, but every day to prayer. That's your president. I think that's marvelous. Um, yes, amen. Whenever we discuss the subject of prayer, we bring it up, we say we're going to preach a sermon on it, or we're handed a booklet about it, we get a little uneasy, frankly. We get a little bit nervous because we've, we've read the press on it. We've heard uh, some of the famous quotes, and we don't necessarily like them. Uh, like John Wesley, who said he had a low view of any Christian who would pray less than four hours a day. Or Martin Luther, who said, I have so much to do today, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. And so we read those kinds of things, or we hear them, and it doesn't lift our hearts, does it? It makes us feel really burdened down and bogged down because we think, man, if he had a low view of anybody who wouldn't spend four hours a day in prayer, he's not going to like me. But at the same time, we would probably all admit that that's one area of our lives that we really want to do better in. I know I would say that. We want to excel in that. When the gospel first went to Africa, the converts were taught to be zealous in their prayer lives, and they were told that they should find a spot in the jungle that they would retreat to every morning and have their devotions. So that when they did, um, the paths became distinctly marked to those spots. Because they walked on them every day, every morning, back and forth. A uh, mark was distinctly made in the forest path. Well, you could always tell if somebody was slacking off in his or her devotions. Because the grass would start to come back on the pathway. And so, oftentimes, when one of the elders of the church wanted to inform a brother that he was slacking off in his prayer life, he would simply put his arm around the young convert and say, grass is growing in your path, brother. And I probably would say that in all of our paths, there's a little grass growing, isn't there? And so we want to see today the path that was worn by the early church. This is the fourth on the list. We've covered all four, and this is the fourth. The Apostles' Doctrine. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and now prayers. And what we want to do this morning is look in the book of Acts and go from general to specific. We want to look generally at their prayer life together as a church, and then we want to see a prayer meeting in chapter 4. That's where we're going to end up. So I'm going to begin, and these are the two main slices of this morning's message. A description of their prayer life generally. And then second, a depiction of their prayer life specifically. And so we notice in verse 42, they, that is those early converts, those 3,000, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. If we were just to ramble around the first few months of this church's existence, we would come over to chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to go back a chapter. And we would notice at least three basic things about their prayer life generally. Number one, this group prayed regularly. They got together just 
to find out what God wanted for them to do next. It was sort of a regular habit. Whenever they got together, you find them, at least some portion of their gathering in prayer. So in chapter 1, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, which means strong emotional prayer, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, can you picture them? There's 120 altogether or thereabouts. They're huddled together in an upper room where they had the Last Supper. Jesus has risen from the dead. They're all excited. Then he leaves. He's on the Mount of Olives and basically says, bye-bye. I'll be back, but I'm going for now. And he lifts off into heaven. And they stand up and they just look at him. He's gone. Now they gather together as if to say, now what? What's next? And so they prayed in one accord. When we were first starting our church in New Mexico some 22 and a half, 23 years ago now, we started a midweek Bible study Thursday night. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And we got asked the question, well, now what are you going to do? I said, well, you know, I've never done this before. I'm 26 years old. I don't know how to start churches. And they got another question. What's next? What are you going to do now? Now, what do we do? And I finally said, you know, I don't know, but let's have a prayer meeting starting Monday night. Let's gather together and we'll ask God, now what? What's next? And that's what we did. Midweek Bible study on Thursday, Monday prayer meeting. What's next? And we watched God move. That's sort of the stage that they are in at this point. Reuben Torrey, who's known by his books as R.A. Torrey, said something interesting, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. He said, pray for great things. Expect great things. Work for great things. But above all, pray. Above all, pray. And we see them doing that. In Acts 1, they did it. In verse 14, also in verse 24, uh, there was a vacancy in the 12 apostles. And so, verse 24, they prayed and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. We won't go through it, but in Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. They're praying. We saw that in verse 42. We see it in Acts chapter 3. They pray uh, at a specific time and hour. In Acts chapter 4, they get persecuted and hassled, so they go to prayer. And then over in chapter 6, let's just take a look at that for a second. Acts chapter 6. There was a problem because the church was divided. One group said, you're not giving us enough attention. You're giving that group more attention. And so they brought the issue to the apostles and said, fix it. And they said, nope, we won't fix it. That's not our job to fix it. You find people around you to fix it and we'll bless it, basically. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, this is from the apostles, search out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. So in looking at the life of the church generally, they were devoted to regular prayer. They prayed regularly. A second thing I want you to notice is they prayed customarily. Now listen carefully to this. It's something that struck me this week. If, if you read verse 42 of chapter 2, it just says, Apostles' Doctrine, Breaking Bread, Fellowship, Breaking Bread, and Prayers. But in the original language, it didn't say that. It says, The Prayers. Tais prasukais. And there's an article in front of the word prayers as if to mean there were some special prayers that when they got together they said. It was some special method or um, certain type of prayers, the prayers. Which prompts the question, well, what prayers were they exactly? And I would have to say, I don't exactly know, but I think at least in part I know. And I want to show it to you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the Jews had regular times of saying the prayers. 9 o'clock in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 in the afternoon. That's when they had their gathering times in the temple for prayer. And there were special prayers that were said. They said the Shema, Shema Israel Adonai Echad, and other composites of Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers. It was a statement of faith and prayer. They often said what they called the Shmon Esrei, which is Hebrew for the 18. There were 18 prayers recited. And if you were very pious, you said them at all three times of prayer, statements of love and faith and devotion to God. Those were their prayers. Now, I don't want to infer that the early church, especially the apostles, were going to the temple and bringing lambs for sacrifice. Their sacrifice in Jesus had already been done. But it would seem, at least in part, they were still attending temple services and offering up their traditional prayers to God. Or at least using that as an opportunity for evangelism like we saw in the previous chapters. Now, why'd they do it in the temple? Because you can pray anywhere, right? You can pray, as we've already seen, in your house. You can pray at the beach. You can pray in the mountains. You can pray in church. You can pray alone. You can pray with people. The temple is where the action was. That's the, the center of the nation's spirituality. It was their heart. It's funny. If you go to Jerusalem still today, there is no temple, but there is a temple mount, a temple grounds, a archaeological ruins, and the the uh, tour guides are fond of telling us Gentile travelers that, listen, God will listen to your prayers everywhere in the world, but here it's a local call. <laughs> that was sort of the thinking even back then. Come to the temple. It's a local call. And it wasn't that they were worshiping with the sacrificial system. It's that the early church was in transition from the old covenant Judaism to New Testament relationship through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it was part of their traditions that kept them tethered. And so they prayed customarily. This was their pattern. I know some of us have a hard time putting in our minds the idea that our early church forefathers were still going to this temple in a regimented form, but I don't think you should be. Even Jesus, when he taught us to pray, gave us a pattern. 
He said, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he didn't say, just, just shoot off at the lip wherever you feel led. He said, when you pray, say this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know the prayer. We all know the prayer. We know the prayer because it was passed down to us as a model prayer by our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's a point I want to make in all this. Just as the early church prayed regularly and customarily, I'm telling us, let's have our own customs. Make your own customs. Maybe your custom is like mine to get up early in the morning and have a time in the Word of God and prayer before you do anything else. You know, I never like to turn on television first in the morning or read a newspaper first. I figure the bad news will always be there. And if I don't get it at 9, CNN will repeat it at 9.30 and 10 and 10. It's Fox News, excuse me. Did I say CNN? I didn't mean that. I meant Fox News. It's the first news organization that got an applause. I'm impressed. And um, I want to make it my custom to talk to God about my day before my day gets away from God and devote it to Him. That's my daily custom. Maybe your daily custom is can't do it in the morning, too tired, I'm a night person, so you do it at night or at noon, or maybe you do it at morning, noon, and night, like they did it. Whatever it is, develop a custom, a pattern, a regular deal where you come and meet with God. Third thing I want you to notice generally about their prayer life is they prayed instinctively. Here's what I mean. Whenever there was a crisis, a turn of events, an issue arising, their instinct, their knee-jerk reaction. Talk to God. Now, we're going to end up in chapter 4 because it's a crisis, but I'm going to take you around the block to get next door if I can. Go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Here's the long and short of the chapter. Persecution is hot and heavy in this chapter. Peter's been arrested. James has been beheaded. Things are not looking well for Peter. He's in jail, and he and they think Peter's next. So if you look with me at chapter 12, verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. What was their reaction when there was a problem? What was their instinct when trouble arose? Was it picketing? Was it, we got to write letters to the government here in Jerusalem. We got their first instinct was to pray. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. Why is it that the first thing we should do is usually the last thing we do? You know, we try every other human means to solve our problem. And then when nothing else works, we, we sort of resign ourselves to prayer as if to, if I can enact it, Lord, there's nothing left to do but pray. Is that what you think? Is that what prayer has become, this last resort? You know, I think one of the reasons that we pray about huge issues is because we should have prayed them when they were small issues. They wouldn't have become so big. It's a last resort. There was a woman who came to G. Campbell Morgan one time. Now, G. Campbell Morgan's in heaven. He has been for some time. He died in the early 1900s. He happens to be probably one of my, if not my favorite, um, old dead guy that I like to read about 
the Bible. He preached great sermons. G. Campbell Morgan was approached by a, a widow, a woman, who said, Dr. Morgan, do you think it's okay if we bring even the little things in our lives before God in prayer? And in his characteristically British manner of wit, he said, Madam, can you think of anything that's big to God? Isn't that great? Can we bring even the little things? Well, Matt, let me ask you a question. Can you think of anything that's even big to God? It might be big to us. Is it big to God? I mean, if somebody says, I have a cold, will you pray for me? You go, oh, yeah, no problem. I got faith for that. Somebody says, I have cancer. Oh, well, (laughs) we better get the elders to pray for you. Well, that's a big deal to you and to I, but is a cold or cancer any bigger to God? It's all the same to him. Speak the word, you're healed. So everything that happened to the early church, small or here big, instinctively, they prayed. And so this the church. This is what marked them. These four things uniquely marked them as the church. If you were to walk into the early church and say, I want a statement of faith, they would have probably given you Acts 2.42. This is what we're into. This is what we do here. We teach the Bible, the Apostles' Doctrine. We get together a lot, fellowship. When we do, it's all centered around the atoning work of Christ, breaking of bread, and we pray. You see, they didn't have a manual on how to start a church or how to incorporate as a 501c3 or how to start a singles ministry. They prayed, and God directed them. So that's their prayer life generally. Now Acts chapter 4, and this is where we camp and we close in the next few moments. We've seen a description of their prayer life generally. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, gives us a depiction of their prayer life specifically. We get to eavesdrop on a wonderful pattern of prayer in the early church. Let me set the stage for you. It's another time of crisis. It's a trial. Persecution is just beginning to boil. A law has been passed in Jerusalem that they cannot preach the gospel. They can't even speak the name of Jesus publicly. So they get together and they pray. They talk to God about it. And um, I think it's sort of interesting to note that trials do bring prayers. We probably pray more when we're in trouble than when everything is peaceful. It's our nature, is it not? You know, somebody once said uh, concerning prayer in the public schools and it being outlawed, they said, listen, as long as there are exams to take, there will always be prayer in public schools. There was even a sign in a principal's office that said, in the event of a nuclear attack, fire, or earthquake, the ban on prayer is temporarily lifted. That's human nature. And so... Persecution had erupted. It was at its beginning stages, and they got together to pray. And in verse 24, their prayer begins. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, and here's where I want you to notice specifically what their prayer life was like. Number one, it was prayer that had perspective. Look at it. This is what they said, Lord, you are God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, 
who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stands. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, period. That's their prayer. It was prayer with perspective. How did they begin? Did they say, Lord, we're sunk? They said, Lord, you're God. That's how they began. They got the right perspective. They realized who they were talking to. By the way, See where it says, Lord, you are God? It's a very unusual construction in the Greek language. Because the usual term for Lord, some of you know, is kurios. That's not the word here. The word here is despata. We get the term despot or autocratic ruler or ultimate authority. And here's why. They had just been threatened by the authorities in Jerusalem. Now they're going to take it to another authority. And it's not Herod in Jerusalem. It's not Caesar over in Rome. It's the autocratic despot, guy in control, big guy over everything, ultimate authority, God. That is what I call praying with the right perspective. Too often we come so overwhelmed with our prayers that we forget who we're talking to. You know, um... Jeremiah said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, the earth by your great power and your outstretched arms. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. It's much easier to have faith when you begin your prayer by recognizing, I'm talking to God. Not to Uncle George, not to Aunt Sally to bail me out, but to God. When Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States, he had a special dinner over at his house, and his aides were invited, and he asked uh, one of his special assistants to open up in prayer. His name was Bill. So Bill started praying, and in the middle of the prayer, President Johnson interrupted and said, Speak up, Bill. I can't hear you. And Bill turned toward the president and said, With all due respect, Mr. President, I wasn't talking to you. (laughs) Don't you love that? I'm praying to God. He had it right. You know, Mr. President, we love you and all, but this isn't about you. This is my prayer to God. When you pray, recognize who it is you're talking to. Notice in verse 25 on down that, I don't know if you have it written this way in your Bibles, but he is actually quoting a Bible verse. He's quoting Psalm 2. As if to say, Lord, you knew all about this even back in Psalm 2. What you wrote in Psalm 2 predicts the event we're now experiencing. So you're obviously knowledgeable and in control of this situation. And here's my contention. If we learn our Bibles well, we'll be great at talking to God. Because the more we learn our Bibles, the more we discover His power, His magnificence, His control, His love. And it causes us to pray with this kind of faith. I have a little book I carry with me. I don't even know if it's still in print, but it's called Drawing Near, and it's basically all the prayers of the Bible that are systematized. 
depending on what day of the month, it helps you in your prayers of adoration, prayers of supplication, prayers of worship, confession. It it is all the prayers of the Bible, so it allows you to pray back to God His Word, those prayers that were written in the Bible. Beautiful way to gain perspective. And that's exactly what they did. The second thing I want you to quickly notice is that it's a prayer that had balance. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 begins their request. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Did you know that five verses up to this point, there's no request? It's all about God. You're great. You're the creator. You can do this. You can do that. You said this. You said that. In other words, their approach to God was a balance not just of request, but of praise, worship, adoration. That's a beautiful balance because, once again, too often we rush into the presence of God And it might not be exactly like this, but our prayers are sort of like, God, help me now or I'm dead. Amen. I need this and I want that. That's not a balanced prayer. How about just stopping before even asking him anything? You get your perspective right and you ascribe worth to him and majesty to him and glory to him and honor to him. Jesus taught us to pray that way. He didn't say, when you pray, say, our father, help But our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. I love the story about a granddaughter. It was her bedtime and grandpa said, go get yourself ready for bed and say your prayers. I'll be up in a minute. She did. By the time grandpa got up, the customary time, she was still talking. She was still praying. Grandpa peeked his head in and said, sweetheart, what are you doing? He said, oh, she said, uh, I'm just telling God I love him. And he's telling me that he loves me. And we're just sitting here loving each other. (laughs) She had prayer right. She had it right. How about coming into God's presence and you've got all these burdens and you just stop and you rest and you go, I love you, Lord. And I know that you love me. And your word says this, and your word says that, and I know you're this, and I know you're that. Oh, and by the way, I have this little issue I want to talk to you about. That's a prayer with perspective, and it's a prayer that had balance. The third thing I want you to notice, it's a prayer that had direction. Verse 29, here's the request. Lord, look on their threats. Notice that. He didn't say stop their threats. (laughs) That's how I pray. Just, Lord, notice what they're doing. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Lord, give us boldness to go out and preach. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. Give us boldness to do it again because that's right. And confirm what we're doing with signs and wonders. Here's my point. Their prayer had direction. It wasn't vague. It was specific. We need to get away from... Any type of praying that would be sort of like, well, Lord, you know every need, spoken and unspoken, so just bless everyone, everywhere, with everything. What is that? Spoken or unspoken, speak it. I remember a a professor once said, never preach to be understood. Preach so that it's impossible to be misunderstood. I'm suggesting to you, pray specifically so that it's impossible to be misunderstood. What if you went into a restaurant and you tried this approach? You walked in the door and said, 
Um, yes, I have a general food need. Bless me. They'd hand you a menu and they go, what do you want specifically? You're ordering here. So rather than, Lord, meet their financial need, how about saying, Lord, he needs 250 bucks this week. That's specific. Instead of, Lord, bless Harriet, how about, what does she need? Well, she needs a friend. Lord, give her a friend this week. Give her a car or whatever it might be. Instead of, Lord, just bless China, how about help the people who live in Beijing to get the gospel out safely and effectively this week? And it's not that God needs information it's not like God's up in heaven going, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for telling me. He already knows it, but the point is, the more specific the prayer, the more specific the outcome. They prayed with direction. Finally, and we close with this, verse 31. This is a prayer that had results. And then, isn't that what we want? Do we want to just say, well, I feel good, I prayed. We want it to work. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. They prayed for boldness. They got it. And they prayed with the right components so that the place was shaken where they were meeting. There's a church in New York City. There's a huge organ. One Sunday they got together for the church service. It was about to start. The organist sat at the organ, pushed his hands on the keys. Nothing happened. Not a sound from that organ. The uh, custodian knew something was wrong, and he guessed it. He was right. It wasn't plugged in. So he wrote a note to the organist basically saying that after the invocation part of the service, he'll plug it in, but he had to write it quickly. So his note said, after the prayer, the power will be on. And I look at chapter 4 and I say, boy, after the prayer, the power was on. They were plugged in. It was a prayer that was balanced. It was a prayer with perspective. It was a prayer with direction. It was a prayer that got results. So, so, just like that man who had his routine every morning, 6.30, 8 o'clock in the office. Our routine, our routine should be, yeah, we're a church and we are devoted to the apostles' doctrine. We are devoted to fellowship. We are devoted to the breaking of bread and we are devoted to prayer. So the bottom line is this. God created you and God created me. God created all of us. To be two things. I'm summing up now this verse. Two things. God created us to be interdependent on each other and dependent on him. Interdependent on each other and dependent on him. There's not a word of independence in that statement. Not independent, but interdependent and dependent upon him. Or to put it in another way, you need the body of Christ. And the body of Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs your involvement. The body of Christ does not need your spectatorship. The body of Christ does not need you peering in from the bleachers from time to time to go in and get a little blessing and go out. It needs your involvement and commitment to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers.
One writer, and I close with this quote, was very insightful. He said, My eight-year-old son told me a joke one morning while I was frying eggs for our family breakfast. Dad, how do you eat an egg without cracking the shell? I thought about it for several moments before he finally conceded that I did not know. And so he replied, have someone else crack it for you. (laughs) Now, this reminded me of some church people, writes the author. They want the benefits the church has to offer without sharing the responsibilities. They want revival as long as somebody else does the praying. They want good programs as long as somebody else does the work. If you want to eat eggs, you're going to have to break some shells. That's good wisdom. 